I said. I did. Thank you. Good. You know, my father was a urologist, and he said you should always go to the bathroom whenever you have to. And you see, you had to. So how do you do? I'm Catherine Hepburn. Yes, I know you are. We shook hands, and from her chair she looked me up and down and smiled. You're tall. A little over six feet, I told her. Tennis? No, I said, but I swim regularly and work out with weights at a gym. Boa. A little boring, I concurred, adding that it was the most time-efficient form of exercise for me. Do you smoke? she asked. I started to laugh, feeling as though I had walked into a production of The Importance of Being Earnest, and said, No, Lady Bracknell, I don't. She laughed and said, I used to. Gave it up. Disgusting habit. Well, I hope you drink. Fortunately, I said, I do. With that, she sent me to the table behind her, on which sat a wooden African mask of a woman with unusually large, wild eyes and prominent cheekbones. Somebody sent me that, she said. It looks just like me, don't you think? Except for the tribal paint, it did. Next to it sat a large wooden tray with several bottles of liquor and three thick glass goblets. Do you see anything there you like? I did. A bottle of King William IV scotch. She asked me to make two of them, according to her specifications, which meant filling the glass beyond the brim with ice, pouring a shot of the whiskey slowly over the cubes, then topping it with soda. She directed me to sit on the couch to her right, white canvas covered with a red knit throw. She took a sip, then a gulp of her drink, and said, Too weak. I doctored it. Yours looks too weak, she said. Fearing a replay of the bathroom episode, I stood my ground, saying, I feel the need to stay one ounce more sober than you. While we discussed the interview I'd come to conduct with her, Phyllis Wilburn climbed the stairs. I started to get up as the neck-braced septuagenarian appeared a little wobbly, but my hostess assured me she was just fine. You've met Phyllis Wilburn, Miss Hepburn inquired as the older woman passed a tray of hot cheese puffs. My Alice B. Toklas. I wish you wouldn't say that, Phyllis insisted. It makes me sound like an old lesbian, and I'm not. You're not what, dearie, old or a lesbian, she said, laughing. Neither. With that, Phyllis fixed her own drink, a ginger ale, and sat in a chair opposite us, and I continued to soak up the room. Hepburn watched me as I gazed at a carved wooden goose hanging on a chain from the ceiling. Spencer's, she said. Then I noticed a painting of two seagulls on some rocks. Do you think that's an exceptional picture or not? she asked. It's amusing, I said. Fun. Me, she said, referring to the artist. The fire was dying, and Hepburn asked if I knew anything about fireplaces. I told her I was no Boy Scout, but that I could probably kick a little life into it. Let's see, she said, preparing to grade me in what was clearly an important test. I used the pair of wrought iron tongs to turn a few logs over, and they went up in a blaze. She was visibly pleased. How about those on the mantel, she asked, referring me to a pair of small figurines, Nude studies of a young woman. Me, she said. You sculpted these? I asked. No, I posed for them. Upon closer scrutiny, I could see that was the case, and that she was pleased again. Over the next few minutes, we made small talk about my hometown Los Angeles, our mutual friend, Director George Cukor, who had died there just a few months prior, and our impending interview. She asked how much time I thought I would need, and I asked, how much have you got? Oh, I'm endlessly fascinating, she said, smiling again. I'd say you'll need at least two full days with me. 
As my fire tending had made the room warmer, I stood and removed my blue blazer, which I set on the couch. I don't think so, said Hepburn gently but firmly. Now look, I want you to be as comfortable as you like, but look where you put that jacket. It's right in my sight line, and it's, well, somewhat offensive. Yes, I said, I can see that. As I started to put it back on, she said that wasn't necessary, that there was a chair on the landing and I should just throw it there, which I did. Upon re-entering the room, I instinctively adjusted a picture on the wall, a floral painting which was slightly askew. Oh, I see, said Miss Hepburn with great emphasis. You're one of those. She smiled approvingly and added, Me too, but nobody was as bad as Cole Porter. He used to come to this house, and he'd straighten pictures for five minutes before he'd even sit down. Listen, while you're still up, I'm ready for another drink. How about you? Again, I made mine the weaker. It was not that I was afraid of falling on my face. It was more that I felt as though I were now walking through an RKO movie starring Catherine Hepburn, and I didn't want to miss a single frame of it. As the clock on the mantelpiece bonged seven, Miss Hepburn said, Look... I only invited you for drinks tonight because I wasn't sure how we'd get on. But you're more than welcome to stay for dinner. There's plenty of food. But I can tell by the way you're dressed, and I must say I like that tie. You've got another date. It's probably better if you go anyway because we are starting to talk too much already, and then we won't be fresh for the performance tomorrow. Shall we say eleven? I explained that I did in fact have a dinner date, but for her I would happily break it. No, she said. We don't want to run out of things to say to each other. We shook hands goodbye, and I exited the room, grabbing my jacket from the chair. When I was halfway down the stairs, I heard her shout, Use the bathroom before you leave! Chapter 2 Making a Difference The first time I didn't meet Catherine Hepburn was in April 1972. I had graduated from Princeton University the preceding year, having written my senior thesis on Maxwell Perkins, the legendary editor at Charles Scribner's Sons, who had discovered and developed F. Scott Fitzgerald, Ernest Hemingway, Thomas Wolfe, and at least another score of the most significant writers in the United States between the World Wars. Even after submitting my thesis, I considered it a work in progress, a first draft of a full-scale biography of the man I considered the most important but least known figure in American literature— a Harvard man whose ancestors went back to 17th century New England, and a New York book editor whose vision ushered American literature farther into the future than any of his contemporaries. He was a Manhattan Yankee. While he chose to live most of his adult life as a Connecticut commuter, in the mid-1930s his highly theatrical wife Louise insisted they and their five daughters move to the city, into the house she had inherited from her father, a brownstone in the area called Turtle Bay, at 246 East 49th Street, next door to Catherine Hepburn. For several years, the Perkinses called New York their home, except for its allowing him to work extra hours with his most challenging author, Thomas Wolfe, who was then constructing of time and the river according to Perkins' blueprint, Max Perkins' dreaded urban dwelling. Louise, on the other hand, thrived, a talented actress and writer who lacked the drive and discipline to pursue an artistic career. She happily filled her days with city life, she found excitement in just living next door to her favorite star of the stage and screen. She was so stimulated she even wrote a play about Napoleon's sister Pauline as a vehicle for Miss Hepburn, a work she did not hesitate to bring to her neighbor's attention. The two women became good acquaintances. Though it privately aided Louise, 
being so close to the very model of everything to which she aspired and yet was so far from attaining. Catherine Hepburn and Max Perkins never met, never comfortable in any kind of theater. He had no interest whatsoever in show people. Perkins's stars performed on paper, but he enjoyed having a figure so glamorous living so close and privately delighted in the constant bustle at 244. His wife's excitation over their famous neighbor amused him, and stories of the fabled actress brought out a touch of the voyeur in him. While he occasionally strained to get a peek at her, the closest he ever got to laying eyes on Catherine Hepburn was in espying a bust of her that sat by one of her drawing-room windows. So in the spring of 1972, when I was diligently approaching everyone I could find who ever knew Max Perkins, I decided I had to interview Catherine Hepburn. To be honest, whatever testimony she might offer would be far from crucial. The fact is, I simply wanted to meet Catherine Hepburn, and I felt I had a good excuse. Growing up, I was always crazy about television and the movies, but I never had any great interest in meeting movie stars. Disappointment seemed inevitable. But as has long been the case with many, from truck drivers to presidents, Catherine Hepburn was always the exception. From the first time I had watched her old movies on television and in revival houses, and her new ones as they appeared in theaters, I wanted to meet her. By the time I had graduated from college, I had seen all of her signature films. Not such an easy task in those pre-video days. Most fans suffer the problem of visiting their own best hopes upon their idols. But to her legions of fans around the world and across the century, Catherine Hepburn somehow seemed different from other movie stars one whose natural beauty was probably just as striking even without Hollywood lights and makeup, one whose dialogue probably crackled with humor and intelligence even without others writing for her, one whose presence doubtless outshone any...